The Last Days of Jesus. That's the series we're in in Luke, the end of the Gospel of Luke, The Last Days of Jesus, where we focus in on this ending of Jesus' life, this focus on his inauguration as king. Ironically, Jesus is inaugurated as king through his suffering and his death and then his resurrection. So that's the focus of the end of Luke chapters 19 through 24. This week, as we turn the page into Luke chapter 22, you can find that on page 880 in the Black Bibles. We're calling it Beautiful Betrayal. Beautiful Betrayal. We're going to see the word betray and betrayal several times in this passage. Betrayal is a terrible thing when we experience it in our own lives, but through Jesus, it becomes something beautiful. Uh, when I was a kid, I did not like stories of betrayal. Um, I did not like drama. I didn't like scary movies or scary shows. I didn't like shows or movies where people were mad at each other. I just had this deep desire for peace and resolution. But as I've grown up, I've come to realize that good stories have conflict and betrayal. That's just part of a good story. I married a woman who, I don't know how to say this, loves drama. I don't mean it in that way, but I mean like she's an actress, she's been in theater, she loves good movies and good books, and so she's taught me to have kind of a, a bigger, more artistic understanding of story and drama and plot. And, and every good story contains some kind of conflict or betrayal, some kind of difficulty, some kind of hard thing. And that's what we're going to see in this story. So we're in Luke chapter 22. Let's read it. Pay attention to the word betray, betrayal. It's going to show up at the beginning of the story, the end of the story as well. So chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So the problem is the crowd. They can't betray him openly because they're afraid of the crowd. They got to do it secretly. So that's setting this up. So verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. It's a story of betrayal. As I said, betrayal's an ugly thing, a hard thing, a difficult thing, a thing that breaks our hearts. But through Jesus, it becomes a beautiful thing. And that's what we're seeing take shape here in the story at the end of the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to pray that God's Spirit would help us uh, to hear what's good, to hear what's bad, to to be able to discern and separate what's going on here, but most of all to see the the beauty of Jesus, who He is and what He's doing for us. So let's, let's pray that He'd meet us. God, we pray that Your Spirit would open our eyes to see Your glory, Your wonder, Your beauty in this story. We thank You that you've not left us without a word, you've not left us without direction, but you speak to us, you come to us through the scriptures by your spirit and you unveil Jesus to us. Help us to see the glory of God in Jesus. Help us to see who you are and what you're doing in this beautiful story of betrayal. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea is beautiful betrayal. As I said, it's a tension there. It's a hard thing, a hard thing for us to make sense of. Um, We've got the betrayal plot unfolding, the story unfolding here at the end of Jesus' life. And we'll see three things as we follow the story just in order. Uh, Number one, we'll see that betrayal is horrible. Betrayal really is bad, right? Christians need to be careful to make sure we still call evil evil, even though we have faith that God can turn evil things for good. So betrayal is horrible, and we have to start there. Secondly, we'll see that Jesus is unfazed by betrayal. Jesus is unfazed by betrayal. That's the second thing that we're going to see as we unfold the story. He just kind of marches forward. He's unfazed by it. And then thirdly, we'll see that we are saved through betrayal. We are saved through betrayal. And that's the really important part at the end of this as he talks about the new covenant. So number one, betrayal is horrible. We see this in verses one through six. Betrayal is horrible. And what we see is we see a contrast between the beauty of holiday uh, celebrations and then this secret plot to betray Jesus. And I just have to confess, I've been reading the Bible for like 34 years, and somehow I missed this one little part of the plot of the betrayal. It never really made sense to me, but I never really asked the question, like, why did they need Judas to betray Jesus? Like, it just never occurred to me, you know, like you just roll with it, you hear the story a million times. Um, They were trying to get Jesus when there wasn't a crowd around. And the city for the Passover celebration was just filled with hundreds of thousands of people. Like all these uh, pilgrims are making their way to the Passover celebration in Jerusalem to come to the temple. So the, the city's just packed and there are people everywhere. And the Jewish leaders are afraid of the crowds. And so they're trying to find a sneaky way to betray him in secret, some back alley or something. So that that's why they need Judas's help, because Judas was an insider and could kind of figure out where Jesus would be and tip them off, because he was basically in hiding at this point. So verses 1 through 6, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. We studied last year a whole series on fasting and feasting, studied the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a part of the Passover celebration. It's one of the feasts, uh, one of the biggest feasts really, where they would remember that God saved them from slavery in the Exodus, one of the most important symbols of God's salvation in the Old Testament. And this was a great holiday. It was a lot of fun. Uh, They had a great time together. Now, during this Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
while this was drawing near, the Passover time, verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So they were seeking how to put him to death. They'd already decided they're going to put him to death. The, the fear of the people forces them to seek a special way. How are we going to put him to death? We've got to put him to death. We hate this guy. How are we going to do it? We can't do it without the mob going crazy because the mob is on his side. So that's where this kind of plot and intrigue comes in. Now it gets even worse. Verse 3. Look at verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So it's kind of Yoda language there. He was of the number of the twelve, right? What it's saying is he was a part of the inside circle. Like this was one of Jesus' guys. Jesus had invested in him. He'd spent life with him. They had healed people together. They had served people together. They had preached the word together. They traveled all over Israel. This was this inner circle, and Satan has entered into this guy that's a part of Jesus' inner circle. This is a terrifying reality. It says, then he went away, and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. So how, how is this going to go down? How are we going to do this? They were glad, and they agreed to give him money. They're like, we'll pay you. We'll give you money so that you can betray him. Verse 6, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So it's the summary verse, as I was saying, that kind of clarifies the whole thing. Like, ah, it's about the crowd, right? Like, that's why they need a betrayer. That's why they need this kind of spycraft and intrigue and secret backdoor stuff is because they can't just do it in front of the crowd. They got to do it when there's not a crowd around. So they got this happy setting. We've got this wonderful holiday. And in the midst of this wonderful holiday, secret plans to betray, to kill, to murder Jesus. And that's horrible. And again, we just have to admit that as Christian people, we have to say, yeah, this is, this is horrible. This is scary. This is not good, right? And we've seen that again and again throughout the scriptures. Jesus lives as fully human. He shows us what it looks like to trust in the Father. So he's an example to us. We believe that Jesus is also divine. He's also fully God. But again and again, he's showing us what it looks like to be a good human, to be the new Adam, to be the Adam that trusts God instead of the Adam that doesn't trust God. He shows us what it looks like to depend on the grace of the Father. And so we see this unfolding where Jesus is always honest and we see him weeping and we see him grieving, right? He turns over tables and he gets angry and we see all these things that show us, yes, human sin is horrible. Betrayal is horrible and we have to recognize that. And then it takes this like next jump of, man, Satan is involved, right? Like this is spiritual, scary horror movie stuff, right? So in the midst of the horror movie stuff, a lot of us are thinking like, man, how can I make sure this doesn't happen to me? I don't know about you, but for some people, I think you're just like, all right, well, I, I don't want Satan to enter me, right? Like, is this some kind of weird demon possession thing? And I want to give like a warning and an assurance here, okay? We believe that John 10, without a doubt, says that if you trust in Jesus, you're secure in his hand and nothing can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus, Okay? So I want to give you some assurance. If you know Jesus, you don't have to worry about something from the outside coming in, some boogeyman, satanic, demons, whatever, taking you over. Now, here's the warning. Throughout human history, again and again, people have said, no, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust what you're offering to me. I, I see that, that I have absolute security in your hands, 
but I don't want that. I want to do life on my own. And so if you're worried about Satan sneaking up on you, the form that that comes in is human pride, right? Like if you're looking for a flag to be waved, you know, red alert, red alert, Satan is coming, right? Throughout the Bible, it's human pride. It's humans saying, I want to be my own God. That's how the influence of Satan comes into our life. It's just that that comes up again and again throughout Scripture. This is a kind of big biblical theme. Uh, so we see Satan enter into him, and we're thinking like, okay, how, how would I know it's coming? And I started, my mind started going down this, this train of like, you know, having a warning when something bad is coming. And I started looking up old pirate flags, right? Like there are these old pirate flags. I got a picture of a pirate flag. This is one of them. Uh, some people say this was Blackbeard's flags. And there's other more famous ones where you've got the skull and crossbones, right? So I don't know if you've heard this story, but the pirates would, would hoist up the flag and they'd fly this flag that was basically like a poison warning, right? Like, here we come, we're going to kill you. And, and as I was thinking about that, I was like, they didn't, they didn't raise that flag so that you could escape. They raised that flag to tell you, you're going down. <laughs> it was all about pride and intimidation. And so let me back up a little bit back to spiritual things. Are, are you looking for some warning that Satan is coming for you? Are you looking for some warning that you're coming under the evil influence of spiritual forces, demonic forces? Uh, biblically, the warning is our own pride. It's our own desire to live apart from God, to not trust him, but trust ourselves. So it starts, the whole book starts, Genesis chapter 3, with, with that's what goes down with the serpent in the garden. Adam and Eve, listen to the lies of the serpent. The serpent says, surely you won't really die. God's just holding out on you. He knows you'll become like a God, and he doesn't want that kind of competition. You should trust me. Don't trust God. Be your own gods. Do your own thing. Be independent. Be your own man, right? That's, that's what Satan is selling us. And it happens again and again and again. That's the warning. Now here's the cure. James chapter 4 says, but God gives more grace. Like that's probably already happening in your life, right? The human story is that's happened in all of our lives. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were all objects of wrath. We were all under the power of the evil one. We were all controlled by him, and yet God offers us his grace the grace of his son. He didn't wait for us to clean up our lives, but he came for us as a rescuing God in Jesus. So James says it this way in James chapter four. He says, God opposes the proud, the ones that are like, I can do this, God, I don't need you. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? The humble are the ones that are like, God, I can't do this, I've blown it, I've wrecked it. Satan has taken over my life. I, I can't do this anymore. That's humility. God, I need you. You're, you're my only refuge. You're my only hope. I've tried to do it on my own and I can't. I need you. That's humility. And so James says in James 4, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. So just tap out and say, God, I need you. Rescue me. That, that's what you do. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So I just want you to see that he says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But please see that when James is talking about this, it's not resist the devil because you have all this advanced training in spiritual warfare. It's not resist the devil because you have magic spells or you know the right words to say or you know fancy prayers. It's resist the devil because you're just throwing yourself on the mercy of God. 
You're humbling yourself before him. God, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. That's how you resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then again, go back to John chapter 10. Nothing, nothing, nothing can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. So is betrayal horrible? Is the spiritual influence of Satan and evil horrible? Yes, it's all horrible, but, but Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope. So some application points. Um, number one, betrayal is horrible, so don't do it, okay? Number one, don't betray people. What are a couple of common ways that we betray people in our culture? This, this happens all the time. If this doesn't fit you, it's not for you, okay? But so often I see men saying, you know what? I'd be more actualized. I'd, I'd, see, I'd learn who I really am if I leave my family behind when I do my own thing. Then I'd, then I'd really find freedom, independence, leaving family behind, leaving my kids behind, doing my own thing. And it's such a cliche, but it's, it's not worth it. You're leaving a train wreck behind you. Now let's make it a little more personal. I think we do this all the time just with community, right? Just normal human community. We leave our friends behind. We leave our neighbors behind just for the sake of pleasure, just for the sake of comfort. That's betrayal. Jesus says that as we see the love that he has for us, that's actually going to open our eyes to be able to serve others in love going to begin to change our character. So those are a couple of just stop it applications. I like to give those occasionally, right? Just stop it. Stop betraying people, okay? But we need to come back to the heart issue. How, how do we do that? It's Jesus. That, that's how we do it. Because we betray people all the time. I betray people all the time. You betray people all the time. The only way that we can really stop it is to see that Jesus gave himself for us. <laughs> Once we recognize that his betrayal was willing he gave himself up, right? He says this repeatedly. Like, he's like, yeah, I know what's happening, and I'm, I'm laying my life down for you. When we see that, then that's what, that's what turns our heart around, to stop betraying others. Run to Jesus. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, second point, Jesus is unfazed by betrayal. Jesus is unfazed by betrayal. So as we said already, Jesus continues to model uh, emotional honesty. That's a trendy phrase, right? Jesus weeps. Jesus turns over tables. He's honest about uh, what's going on in his humanity. Betrayal is horrible. He doesn't pretend it's not. And yet he's unfazed. And yet he continues with the mission. He keeps going. As Hebrews says, it's for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He didn't say it's not shameful. He just he kept going because he had a mission. The Father was sending him on. He's unfazed by the betrayal. So we see this in verses 7 through 15. Verse 7, it says, And came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So all this beautiful symbolism that Jesus' betrayal, Jesus being murdered, coincides with the celebration of the sacrificial lamb. Fulfillment of everything that's gone before. We'll come back to this in the third point. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it, right? So let me explain this again. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. It's very clear. We come back to that in the end verses. And what does he do? He's like, we need to have a party. He just marches on with normal life. It's like, we really need to have this party. I'm about to die. I really want to have this party before I die, okay? And so he gives instructions to his disciples 
He sent them to make preparations for the Passover meal, this big holiday meal. Verse 9, they said to him, well, where will you have us prepare it, right? Like, we don't, we don't have a place. What are we doing? We don't live, you know, we don't have houses, Jesus. We left everything to follow you. Verse 10, he said to them, behold, when you have entered a city, uh, the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So there's two ways we can understand this. I think both are valid. Uh, One way to understand it is Jesus is exercising his divinity here, right? Supernatural prophet, Holy Spirit power, and he's somehow supernaturally making arrangements, right? Through prayer, the power of the Holy Spirit, right? He's exercising that side of what we see in his life. I actually think we're actually seeing the human side of Jesus here where he's just like, yeah, I already made plans. Like I called some guys ahead of time. It's all fine, right? (laughs) Like he set it up. He's a good leader that took care of the plans for the holiday celebration. He's like, this is really important to me. And so I made some arrangements ahead of time. That's how I take it. You can take it either way. I don't think it's that important, right? Because either way, Jesus is taking care of it. He's taking care of it. He's making plans. He's continuing with normal life. He's going to have the party. Now, when we were in the fasting and feasting sermon series last year, this time of year, uh, we saw this crazy idea that God commands us to have parties. You remember that? Anybody around for that? Isn't that crazy? Like, just soak in that for a minute. The God of the universe commands me to celebrate. Isn't that, isn't that wild? He doesn't just command us to celebrate. He gives us reasons to celebrate. He's like, hey, I know you wrecked everything, right? But I'm redeeming the world. I'm making it all okay. So I want you to have some parties. I want you to celebrate my bigness, my greatness, that I'm your champion, that I'm the one that's shed the blood of a Passover lamb, made the sacrifice so that you can be saved. God commands us to have these parties. And we see Jesus marching forward again as as the perfect human, obeying God and saying, yeah, I'm I'm about to die and it's going to be horrible, but but we're going to have this party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to do good things. And so I want to encourage you. This goes back a little bit to what we were talking about last week with end of the world stuff, right? Like it's the end of the world. What do we do? We have parties. We love our neighbors. We eat meals. We plant trees. We have kids. We build businesses. We make friends, right? Like we do normal things because God is in control. Because we can trust him. Because he really is redeeming the world. We don't have to be in the corner huddled, worrying and freaking out. We, we can trust him. It's going to be okay. And that's what we see modeled here in Jesus. He's, he's making the plans. He's, he's controlling everything. He's, he's in charge. We can trust Jesus. I grabbed a picture of uh, a holiday celebration uh, online. This looks like a Thanksgiving meal. Maybe it's a Christmas meal. We have parties in our world. I would say Christians should be good at having parties. Sadly, sometimes we're not. Sadly, sometimes we're not good at having parties, right? But we are commanded by God to have parties, to celebrate his glory and his honor. And I would say, man, that's, that's an important part of the Christian life. An important part of discipleship is that we would be unfazed, right? Like everything's going crazy. The world's falling apart. Do we want to be emotionally honest? Yes, we can cry. We can weep. We can be angry about injustice. And by faith, we march forward. With, with normal plans, having parties, loving each other, being good neighbors. Um, Jesus goes on in verse 14 and 15. 
says, when the hour came, he reclined at table. Uh, literally, they would like lay down on pillows. They had almost like a coffee table set up was how they would eat. They didn't have the big tables with chairs like we do in the modern world. They'd have low tables and they'd kind of lean against them, which explains a lot of the strange dynamics of, of food and stuff. There's an alarm going off. Um, and so he's reclining at the table, low table, laying on a, on a pillow, verse 15. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Um, When you're heading into hard things, one of the most therapeutic, good, and beautiful things you can do is do normal life, right? Like not just check out and say, I give up, I'm done. No, your time's not done until your time is done. (laughs) And so Jesus models that for us as well. He's unfazed by betrayal and he's moving forward. Um, One of my favorite passages about this way of living is Jeremiah 29. It's when uh, God's people were in exile, right? They disobeyed God. They'd ruined everything. God judged them, tore down Israel, and then they were exiled into Babylon. And in Jeremiah 29, they're given prophetic instructions by God. They get a letter from God, right? Like if your life was falling apart, and everything was terrible because of the mistakes that you had made, it'd be nice to hear from God, right? And God sends them a letter in Jeremiah 29 that's like, I'm not done with you yet. I love you. And here are my instructions for you. Pray for the welfare of the city that God has exiled you in. Love the people around you. Plant trees, build homes, make friends, build families. Love the people around you. Make the world a better place. I'm not done yet. And I think that is just a good, simple human instruction for us, right? Talked last week, end time stuff. We don't know if the end times are coming next week or in a thousand years. Our marching instructions are the same. We're going to honor Jesus and love him and trust him and love our neighbors, go to parties, build businesses, have homes, go to our jobs, be faithful where he's planted us. Okay, next point. We are saved through betrayal. We are saved through betrayal. And this is the big turn, right? This is the, the crazy part of the story, um, the good news, if you will, in this passage that's full of a lot of bad news. So we'll pick up the story in verse 16. So he's already told them, man, I've just really wanted to eat this with you. I've really wanted to enjoy this party with you before I suffer. So in verse 16, he says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's saying, I'm not going to have this again. I'm not going to have this party again. I've wanted to have this party. I'm not going to have it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I, I believe because of the context of everything else he's saying, he's talking about the fulfillment of his death and resurrection. Because he doesn't necessarily have a specific Passover meal with his disciples um, after his death and resurrection, but he does have meals with his disciples again and again, right? And so I think the focus here is that there's real fulfillment of the Passover as a symbol of God's saving acts in the Old Testament, there's real fulfillment of, of that that's about to happen. He's like, this is about to happen. It's about to be fulfilled. And I think that's the emphasis here. Remember, the Passover was a holiday where in the Old Testament, they would remember, oh yeah, God saved us. Through a sacrificial lamb, God saved us, but also through all kinds of supernatural mighty acts, God saved us from the greatest power in the ancient world, Egypt. We were slaves. And through miracles, we came through the waters of death and he rescued us. And they would remember this every year. And Jesus is saying, 
Yeah, it's going to be fulfilled very soon. Remember what we saw months before, Luke chapter 9, when there was this miraculous conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the mountain. It said literally the word exodus. They were talking to Jesus about the exodus he was about to perform in Jerusalem. Here we are. Jesus is like, I so wanted to have this party with you before I accomplish the real exodus. I wanted to have one last party that looks back on the old exodus before I fulfill the new exodus through my death and resurrection. And there's more. Verse 17, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, here, I think he's talking about the kingdom of God coming in his death and resurrection. So as we look at end times, part of the reason the end times study is confusing is because they start with the resurrection of Jesus. And then they end with heaven. And then there's like all this in between. You know, we're living in the in between. It's kind of confusing. And Romans 8, we referenced last week, talks about that aching and longing for the fulfillment when we see Jesus face to face. We've already got the kingdom now in that we're reconciled to God. We have forgiveness. We love God. We're a part of his family. He's adopted us, right? We have all that now, and yet we're still looking forward to no more death, no more betrayal, no more pain, no more evil in the world. That hasn't happened yet. And so here he's saying, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God, took the cup. He says, I tell you, I won't drink until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. This is my body, which is given for you. What's the command? Do this in remembrance of me. That's the low bar of what we understand to be communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Different traditions use different terms for it, and that's okay. The bottom level bar is remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. That's the straight up command. Now, we can all study theology and we can debate everything else that's being said here but make sure you remember Jesus. We have to remember Jesus. That is the command. You must remember Jesus. Now, there are a lot of debates, and I actually believe what's called the memorial and the spiritual presence view. Just so you know, I have a view, and if you want to buy my lunch, we can talk more about theology, right? I like to say that every week. I haven't gotten a lot of free lunches out of it yet, but they're coming, I think. Um, and so we would say our, our Catholic and Lutheran and Episcopal brothers and sisters have a slightly different view that there's something like more physical going on, like that's literally the body of, of Jesus somehow in that. I would say, I don't believe that, but I don't think you're terrible for believing it, right? Like, I'm not going to demonize you for that. Like, okay, I don't, I don't see that in the text. I think uh, ancient church folks in the medieval ages were kind of just going too far. They were stating more than what scripture states here. I think this is taken in the same way that all the other metaphors Jesus gives about how he's the true temple, how he's the good shepherd, right? How he's the door, all, all of these things, I take it in the same way, that the reality is in him. And so again, what we can all agree on is we must remember Jesus. We might disagree about the other secondary theology, but we must, we must, we must remember Jesus. He's the sacrifice that brings our salvation. So however you come in your understanding of communion, you must come to it with the, I'm doing this because Jesus has given himself for me. That's the point. The point is Jesus. So memorial view is like, we remember Jesus, that's it. End of story. Spiritual presence view is, 
just like all the other verses that say when we obey God, the Spirit's there in it with us, He's present with us, we also believe that about communion. So that, that's how I understand it. It's just like, just like when the Word is taught and you believe it with faith, the, the Spirit is present with you, or where you're gathering in prayer with other believers and, and you trust God, the Spirit is there with you, right? In the same way when we come to communion and we're saying, I, I need you, Jesus. Thanks for reminding me of your sacrifice. The Spirit's there with us. So we believe in the presence of Jesus spiritually in that sense. But again, what's the main goal? The main goal is to remember Him, to declare Him, to trust Him. Okay, so... Again, in verse 19, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, likewise, the cup after they'd eaten it, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, new covenant's a very important uh, concept in the scriptures. It comes up in other places in Corinthians and Hebrews as well. I'm going to finish these few verses and go back to explain what covenant means. So verse 21 says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, Right? So this new covenant is being activated in Jesus' life in the midst of this betrayal. It's, it's a part of this betrayal plot. He's being murdered. The way Peter talks about it in his early preaching in Acts is, is you guys delivered him. You turned him over. You are the ones that betrayed him, and God used this for our salvation. So the most evil act that's ever taken place in human history is the murder of Jesus. And God used that for our salvation. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so this is that tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is so sovereign that he can, he can turn the universe upside down. Evil things he can turn for good somehow. And Romans 8 talks about that. And so we can trust him as king, even when we see evil and chaos in the world but also human responsibility is so real that woe to any of us that would ever do any evil thing ever. Both of those things are right, right here in this verse. Like, this is determined. Jesus is going to save us. We can trust him. And yet, real human responsibility. Woe to the man that, that betrays him. Verse 23, they, the disciples, were clueless, right? They began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, I believe the mechanism, if you will, for salvation is this covenant that God has been making with his people throughout history. Lots of different covenants. If you want to go more in depth on this subject, I found the lectures of Ligon Duncan to be really helpful. He's got a series of lectures called Covenant Theology. I don't believe everything in detail what he says, but like 80% solution, it's just really solid, just unfolding the biblical covenants. He's Presbyterian, so he has some slightly different views than I would on some things. But it's really helpful. You can just find this online free. He's a professor, president of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. It's covenant theology. Covenant, here's the definition that he gives of a covenant. It's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So I think bond is the most helpful thing. We typically think of covenant as a contract, but more serious than that, right? Like contract is kind of too small of a thing for it. It's like this more serious thing. The closest thing we have in our culture, I think that we are real familiar with, is a marriage covenant, where you're saying, till death do us part. Most of us, there wasn't a lot of blood involved in the ceremony, but we're saying, 
we're saying till death do us part, right? There's a seriousness there and it's sovereignly administered. There's some kind of tribal chief or ship captain or pastor or justice of the peace involved, right? And so this is sovereignly administered in the community. It's a serious bond in blood. Now I want to explain how this takes place in scriptures, right? There's, there's multiple covenants unfolding in scriptures. Uh, a lot of different ways we could look at it. Again, I encourage you to study this more. But the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, I think is really helpful for us to understand how it actually worked. So I have a picture here. Uh, I've got a picture of the Abrahamic covenant unfolding from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, the common way this would unfold, there are variations, but the common way is that animals would be cut open and split to the side and you'd walk through these split open animals. You're walking through the blood with someone. So, you know, you've seen in the movies where two guys like cut their hands and then they shake hands. It's like that but much worse, okay? <laughs> you just split open a bunch of dead animals. And as you're walking through the blood path, you're saying, I'm making an agreement, a bond with you. And may it come upon me as it has on these animals if I don't fulfill my bond, my commitment, my covenant with you. So it's a bond in blood. Sovereignly administered, there's usually a, a leader overseeing it or a leader of the other person involved. And so... In Genesis 15, this is crazy. We've taught on this a lot before, but I know a lot of you are always new. If you remember how it unfolded in Genesis 15, anybody remember what Abraham was doing during this covenant ceremony? He was sleeping. God knocks him out, puts him to the side, and then the presence of God goes between the animals. And so in this covenant that God is making to save the world through Abraham and his descendants that's fulfilled in Jesus, what is he saying? He's saying, may it come upon me if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, and may it come upon me, God says, if you don't fulfill your part of the bargain. That's the fulfillment we see in Jesus. He's torn asunder. It's the blood path. It's coming upon God himself, the penalty for the failure to fulfill the covenant. None of us have fulfilled it, but Jesus has. And so Abraham's asleep on the side. God's the one that passes through the blood. Says, this is going to come upon me. And that's fulfilled in Jesus. And then this language gets echoed. Another key passage is in Exodus 24. The, the covenant is unfolding when God's people are rescued around the Passover time. God gives them the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses sprinkles all the people with blood and says, this is the blood of the covenant that God's making with you, Right? So Jesus is echoing all this language when he's holding up the cup. And again, I'm saying that he's saying that that cup is about his death and resurrection. It's not so much about the cup. We remember his death and resurrection when we drink from the cup. But he's saying this is it. The new covenant is unfolding now. The fulfillment of every sacrifice in Old Testament history. Every image Every sacrificial system, every covenant that's been made, it's all fulfilled in Jesus. So the key text for this is Hebrews 8. Uh, it says, now we have a new covenant in Jesus. It's quoting Jeremiah. Again, we could, we could, I, could, I could talk a lot more about this. Go listen to the lectures by Ligon Duncan. But Hebrews chapter 8, it says it's a new covenant. The old covenant that God made with uh, Moses and his people wasn't bad in and of itself. It says really explicitly in Hebrews 8, the problem was the people. The problem was the people. And so now it says the difference in the new covenant 
is instead of the law just being offered to the people that God has saved, now God is writing the law on our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And that's what God does through the new covenant that he's made through Jesus. And so this is unfolding. It's talked about a lot more in 2 Corinthians as well. So here's my favorite uh, passage about this covenant in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this blood of the covenant is Jesus being offered in our stead. He's our substitute. So we give our sin to him, and he gives his righteousness to us. It's this great exchange. That's what the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is about. He lived the perfect life that we should live. He died the sacrificial death that we deserved to die, but that he didn't deserve to die. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he has conquered sin and death forever. That, that's the blood of the covenant, is what Jesus has accomplished for us, so that we can be seen as the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means when you trust Jesus, God sees you as righteous. That should blow your mind. Let me say it in modern language. Because of Jesus, God likes you. Isn't that crazy? I think if you've grown up in, in Christian circles, it's like, well, I know God forgives me, but he surely doesn't like me. No, he likes you. He's delighted in, in you if you trust in Jesus. But if you say, no, I don't, I don't want that. I want to do life on my own. You're outside. You have no part. You have no share in what Jesus is doing for you. So how do we apply this? Um, number one, you have to personally trust in the betrayal of Jesus to save you. The worst evil that's ever happened in humanity, God has turned for good. And he says, Jesus has, has been killed in your place. He's the ultimate Passover lamb sacrificed for you. He's the fulfillment of this Passover. He's the new exodus. He's the new rescue through the waters of death. Trust in Jesus. Trust personally in Jesus to save you. And then one of the ways that we're shaped and formed to be reminded, to remember him, is by things like communion, prayer with the saints, learning from God's word, gathering with other Christians, getting in small groups, encouraging one another, praying for each other, weeping with one another, and rejoicing with one another, right? Those things help us to remember that we really can trust Jesus. And that's what it means to walk as disciples in Christian community. And then here's the third way to apply how we're saved through betrayal. And this is the hardest one. And so I don't say this lightly, but I say this with prayer, trusting that God will translate this for you. Um, we can trust that even the betrayals that have happened to us, God can turn for good. I started with betrayal is horrible, and I think it's important that Christians understand betrayal is horrible. We don't, we don't want to start saying that bad is good and good is bad. Bad is bad. But somehow God saves through that. Somehow God is bigger than that. Somehow God is more gracious than that. That's not the end of the story. And so even the betrayals that you've gone through, God can use that to, to serve others, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week with, with Peter, talking about how these, these pains and sufferings we go through are our opportunities to testify to the truth of the gospel. Paul says it even more strongly in Colossians 1.24. Paul says that he fills up in his own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And it's real clear that when you do a deep dive, he's not saying the cross was not enough. 
He's saying not everybody has received the cross yet. The cross is enough to save us. Jesus is enough to save us, but in our own betrayal, we're able to deliver that message. Through our own pain and hurt and difficulty that we go through, that gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be jars of clay that hold on to this treasure of the gospel itself and to deliver that, to fill that up, to, to deliver that to others. Um, Romans 8, as I said, explains this more. We want to be careful not, not to say that bad thing that happened to you was good. It's, it was not. It was bad. But, but God can use it for good. God can meet us supernaturally because he's the one that used the ultimate betrayal of the universe to save us through the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay, we'll wrap up here. Um, big idea is this beautiful betrayal. Um, God's mingling these two things together that we wouldn't, we wouldn't normally put together, uh, that we can only make sense of supernaturally. Um, and, and Genesis finishes, it's a long 50-chapter book, first book of the Bible. Genesis finishes the story with the beautiful betrayal. It starts with the betrayal of all betrayals that, that broke everything, right? When you and me and Adam and Eve said, we want to be our own gods. Genesis chapter 3, that plunged the world into brokenness and sin. So we said, I'd, I'd rather be on my own. I, I don't trust you, God. That broke everything. But in Genesis chapter 50, we see this betrayal that saves God's people, that is setting, setting us up story-wise for the for the true salvation that's coming in Jesus. And so that's how God finishes the story in Genesis, talking about the character of Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers. And so right at the end of the story, uh, Joseph's brothers were terrified that Joseph was going to take revenge on them because they'd betrayed him. And so when their dad dies, uh, they send messengers, and then they go and grovel, and they're saying something like, hey, Joseph... Before dad died, he, he wanted us to make sure to let you know you shouldn't murder us, right? Like, important message dad wanted you to know. And it's just, it's kind of ridiculous. And Joseph is like weeping and grieving. And, and this is Joseph's answer to them when they're afraid of his revenge. Joseph said, don't fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So human beings meant that for evil against you, against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I want you to see that God's been telegraphing this story all through the Bible. The whole Old Testament is saying, look, look for this, look for this. Even though we've betrayed him, he saves us. He shows us grace through the death and resurrection of his beloved son. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you save us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you gave Jesus for us. And God, we pray that you would make us the kind of people um, that give ourselves for others. Uh, will you show us how to give ourselves away the way that Jesus did? We pray that you'd teach us. You'd conform us more and more to the image of your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.